Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds Warren. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. Uh, really psyched today to A, start up our draft coverage. I've been wanting to for a while. I know people have been wanting me to for a while, but I wanted to make sure I had a pretty good grasp on things before I got started and didn't do any lazy analysis. So naturally, I had to bring on the uh, one, one of my good friends who I'm fortunate enough to talk to every day um, and just a really great person all around. And of course, draft aficionado, PD Webb. PD, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I'm really amped to be here. Um, and I'm really amped for who we're going to talk about today. I'm sure, uh, well, I won't leave it ambiguous in the title, but before we even talk about it, I do have to ask because I was on one of your streams the other day, was very disappointed you didn't answer my question because it was not me ball related, but how do you feel about the game death stranding by Hideo Kojima? Because I know that you are a big metal gear fan, obviously Hideo Kojima metal gear. Death Stranding was very, uh, very mixed for people, but I absolutely loved it. And I just have to get your take on it because I haven't heard it yet. Um, yeah, if you like when Kojima goes off the deep end, then you'll love that game. Uh, if you like games that um, like where walking can be the most fun part. <laughs> like, I, like, I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, that, like there I some of my favorite games are games where I'm like walking and I'm like, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? Or like, you know. There, I, there is an atmosphere being created that like action isn't necessarily the goal of and just death, death stranding is for you um, if you need things to make sense or um, to be believable um, or don't like you know being alone for long stretches of time do not play death stranding it will freely harsh out your mellow yeah so i uh i don't think i've ever been more confused by a storyline or a game than I have been by Death Stranding, but I think that was part of what the allure of it for me. Um, like I just kind of never knew what was going to happen when I started playing it again, but I did know I would be walking. That is a good point. I, I knew I would be spending copious amounts of time walking all over the barren wasteland that was uh, post-apocalyptic America. Um, but I enjoyed it, man. Like the graphics were fun. I thought one of the best original scores for a game like ever was really good. Um, just a good game, man. But the the ending is wildly convoluted. Like it just the it, it goes it goes hog wild in in like the last hour and a half of the game, and you just kind of are like, what is going on? But Mad Maz Mickelson's in it, so you know what? It's worth a shot. A Kojima game being convoluted. This is- <laughs> Never heard of that before, right? Um. So yeah, man. Uh, now that we got that out of the way, uh, speaking of Death Stranding, uh. Looking at the Pacers roster right now, and <laughs> less the roster, more about other things. But um, when you look at this from an outside perspective, just looking purely at, at, at talent on the roster and uh, the makeup of, of all the guys there, um, obviously, I think things are going to be different after this offseason. Like, I'm sure that trades and whatnot will happen, uh, just given how this year has gone and, and based on some stuff that was going on prior to the year and has gone on during the year. 
uh, some guys will leave in free agency. But when you look at this roster right now, um, I mean, what stands out to you in terms of need or uh, like any kind of weaknesses on the roster? Um, the roster doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Um, that's like, I think that there are sort of two rosters within where it's like, I think that pursuing multiple team building pathways is very dangerous as a philosophy. Um, and trying to figure out, you know, which one of, of Turner or Sabonis will be kept or, you know, either. Um, while trying to tinker and, and gain insights from the lineup, I think has kind of reached its endpoint. Like, I don't know how much more information the front office could want. Um, and both of them um, could have their, you know, their value greater in, in the next year if uh, if it becomes clear that, like, this, this is sort of a situation where the front office won't make a move um, so that, you know, if, if a GM change is made or, you know, if a, if a coaching change is made and the plan does change, um, I just think that this roster has to um, be re-clarified around a single idea. Not like, let's see what happens here, because I think that like what we've seen is like, this is a roster that, you know, can compete for the playoffs, but it can't necessarily do more than that because of the limitations of, uh, you know, the energy spent trying to figure out the roster is, is energy that could be better spent like winning games around one idea. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think that's something that becomes really apparent, like, when they play lower rung teams or average teams and even like a couple of the good ones that they match up better with, like they can, they can play and it, and it works. And it's less about Turner and Sabonis and more about how hard you have to uh, work to make the rest of the roster make sense around playing two bigs. Because I think, well, in some regards, they can make sense offensively. Defense is just the big problem. Like when you have to play a team that can go five out and you're putting one of those guys on the perimeter. And it's it's not just like matchup based. You know, like there's a lot more that goes into defense um, than just, you know, having one on one matchups. But at, at the end of the day, it does matter if a wing can take Demonis Sabonis one on one from the perimeter. Well, it's not really great. So, um, yeah, it becomes a pretty glaring weakness, especially in the playoffs. So. Who we're here to talk about today, because the way that I envision a lot of the Pacers needs and, and who they're looking for, I think part of the reason why I look at we're, we're talking about Scotty Barnes today out of Florida State, who we're going to get some background on and talk about in very in depth shortly. But um, I mean, for me, the Pacers are just in dire need of a I mean, anybody who is a, a combo forward is a win in my books just over like the team just doesn't have fours on the roster. Like O'Shea Brissett is close, but even then he's kind of small six, seven, which isn't quite like being what you maybe desire as a, as a, as a stretch four type. Um, like I think ideally a guy who's a four or five is, is what I look at on the roster who can maybe provide more lineup flexibility while still playing in a traditional lineup with a center. Um, and I, I, Scotty might be that guy. I, I mean, we're going to talk more in depth about it. I have a lot of ideas and thoughts after watching quite a bit of film on him. Um, but just to, to get your perspective right away, uh, should the Pacers draft Scotty Barnes if they still have two bigs on the roster? No. Yes. Um, yeah. Scotty's most interesting component is uh, his ability to flex around a, uh, a, a, a lineup. You could, you know, have him defend some fours. You can have him defend some fives. Um, and, you know, in, in time, he can defend some, you know, wings, uh, especially like the stronger type of wing. Um, 
but to do that, you need a, a lineup that is very flexible. And um, I think that there is the, the largest need for the Pacers, once you clarify this roster, is going to be a, a combo forward who does like a thing. Mm-hmm. Like they have a, a distinct identity. And Scotty's identity is, is, is sort of talking on defense and uh, and providing that uh, that like team defense sense, but he sort of does it in a broad sense. Like he's capable of doing many smaller roles, and I don't think that's necessarily aligned with where this Pacers team is right now or will be. You know, as as the um, the unwinding of this current roster happens. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, I think. Well, before we talk a little bit more in depth, uh, what background would you say is important to know on Scotty going into to the draft and drafting him? Yeah, um, so Scotty is a six foot eight, six foot nine uh, forward from from Florida State. Uh, I think he's a plus seven wingspan, Doesn't which is like that, that's pretty good. So yeah, it's, it's very good. Um, he is sort of the quintessential winner type player. Um, his senior year of high school, he played for Montverde Academy for what I would say is the best high school team of all time, um, at least for my money. Um, uh, Moses Modi, Kate Cunningham, uh, Daron Sharp, and then you know the guys who were still in high school um, in, in the NBA draft classes of 22-23. Um, a, a really special group, and they beat teams by playing defense in like the most uh, swarming way I've ever seen in high school where Scotty and Cade would be allowed to trap wherever they wanted to. And it wouldn't be called. So it just, you see Scotty sprint and then there'd have to be three rotations to cover the extra space. And uh, it was like watching a lot of high school teams run into a buzzsaw uh, because these are you know, playoff rotations you're basically seeing. Um, and that's the mentality that you get from Scotty Barnes is, is really high energy um, defensive rotations and just a, a very intelligent, like winner type player, like guys that the stat line doesn't always jump out at you. But the way that he plays the game and the things that aren't necessarily represented in the in the box score are the things that are the most important. Um, he's probably my favorite player to watch in this group um, because he does all the things that I really like. Um, but I also think that his uh, NBA context is very difficult because he doesn't necessarily have an offensive position. Um, you know, he, it's more of a diffuse impact offensively, um, needing a, a specific context to to bring out positive ideas. Um, and not every team can do that, but the team that finds the exact perfect fit for Scotty is going to be a good player. Yeah. So I, I, just to go off that too, I would agree. Like he's been out of the 30 or 40 guys I've watched so far out of this group. I think he's been by far my favorite to watch. Like, um, I do think like, uh, sometimes the, um, some of the small things that, you think of like an old scout or old old coach from high school like getting excited about or things that don't excite me and I think get overblown. But like I was watching today and uh, the game against Notre Dame when they got absolutely shit canned, um, like there was a possession where he's in the post and has a mismatch uh, for like, it feels like 15 seconds because they're not in the paint and he's calling for the ball and calling for the ball and the ball kicks around four or five times on the outside and uh, I don't remember who takes the jumper. It wasn't Raekwon Gray, which is I, I would remember if it was Raekwon Gray because I love watching him play too. But um, sinks the jumper and Scotty's like jumping up and down and like pumped that his teammate hit a jumper, even though he didn't get the ball. And to me, that's like, again, small thing, not something that I think you should really base how you're drafting somebody on. But like it just watching Scotty Barnes hound somebody for 94 feet at six foot eight, six foot nine. Um and just doing like a ton of little things on court, like you're mentioning, like, I think he really just 
the way that I envision him at the next level, and I want to ask you about that too. Like I just envision him as a guy who's doing like saying a glue guy is it sounds reductive, but um like I I envision him almost like Thad Young this year in uh in Chicago. Like obviously he doesn't really have a post game, so that's different because Thad had a pretty established post game coming out of Georgia Tech, if I remember correctly. Uh doesn't have the same kind of scoring capacity, but like in terms of what he can do, like moving and just being a connective player on both ends, like the defense is incredible. I, the, I I'm sorry, I'm getting like way too in depth, but I, I would ask, how do you, how do you envision him at the NBA level? Yeah, I think that um, for players of his archetype, you're going to hear a lot of like Draymond Green comparisons um, because you know he's a long armed, you know, undersized big man um, who's like, well, Draymond wasn't like the like. How much do you think Scotty weighs? And this, I know you're aficionado. A, a, you have a particular talent for for guessing, uh, like how, like the number for like we think two forty. Yeah, I would say around like two thirty five or two forty right now. What is he listed at? I don't know. Uh, college weights are funny. Yeah, because uh, Terrence Shannon Jr. is two ten. My ass. That dude is two forty or two fifty easily. But yeah. it's all I mean, lies. Scotty's, Scotty's a big guy, and he's a uh, like. I think that part of the allure is watching a guy who looks like he should be playing football, but happens to be six nine. <laughs> yes, um, he looks like he could be a defensive end at, at Florida yeah. State. Yeah, like if you saw him, like you know, when you watch basketball, you forget how tall guys are. Yeah, with, like the exception of Giannis, you're just like, oh, that's a normal sized guy. Like you have the same thing with Scotty. You're like, man, he's from Florida. He's just putting his foot in the, or his hand in the dirt somewhere. And you're like, he's six nine. Like, Never mind. I understand what's happening here. Um, I think that at the NBA level, the things they that really have to be like it depends on what the five he's drafted next to is like this is the most important thing is that he can play some he can play defensive five i think that's probably like the most important like the 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 essential position for him is is where his communication is is most valuable um but then you need a five who can slide their feet and, and invert the offense or in, invert the defensive play of the four and then also shoot on offense so like we're talking about a pretty small group of fives that are a natural fit, and that's before we even you know build out to, um, you know, you probably need to shoot first point guard to to absorb the usage that Scotty's you know not going to carry because he's always going to be a connecting piece, and and the passing that he does have is going to be, um, you know, not a creation for self and others, but you know making an extra pass or or picking out a cut. Um, so I think that a team that um, like Portland has has been a favorite of mine for a long time. Oh, that would actually be really nice for him. Yeah, um, where like maybe he turns into the wing defender that that they need long term, but even short term, him bringing a whole bunch of energy, um, to the the big space of offense that they play, and having you know a, a guard who can really shoot, two guards who can really shoot pull up threes, like that makes a lot of sense. And then like there are teams that are very much going to be allured by him because he does so many things that like make showing up to work as a basketball player fun, mm-hmm. like. He's one of, I'd say, like five guys in this class that I've seen end a game at when it started. So, like, Montverde would play probably one of the hardest schedules in, in the country. They played, like, seven state title winners his senior year. And they would routinely, like, 40 baldies, like, state championship teams, like the best team in, you know, in, in Texas or, or New York or, or Vegas or whatever. And they had a tip-off. They, their tip-off play would be, you know, be pass-pass and be lead to Scotty getting it dunked. And he would, you know, win or whatever. And then start clapping, and then turn and immediately start to pressure the the, the ball handler. And you can see some teams will from that moment of being like, "Oh yeah, we're here," and like this this game is going to be a wrap early, and teams are going to fall in love with that because that's how he plays basically every game. Is uh, I'm here to murder you, 
with defense, energy, and fun. Um, and I think that a lot of teams are going to to latch onto that, saying like, this is a culture setter. This is a guy who plays the right way. This is a guy who plays hard. And he fits in the idea of a modern NBA because he does have some positional versatility. Um, that being said, that is a bit of a trap because he does have positional requirements in terms of the relationships at three and five. Yeah. So I think that really leads me into what I, I mean, a couple of thoughts on that. Number one, the clapping always gets me. I can't remember the, like in watching this morning, I was like, uh, and, and the last couple of times I have as well, it, it feels like he claps at the end of every possession. Like he is just, he's there. Like, like, uh, the, the energy just comes through ridiculously. Uh, there are like, I mean, there are very few guys who I get that same kind of energy from, and it's just, it's awesome to watch. Um, and it feels like so many guys from Florida state have come out like that. Um, yeah. but I mean, I think like the, the biggest thing too, cause like whenever I see stuff thrown out about Scotty, like I've seen the idea of like, uh, like I don't want to undersell his passing. Like the passing is really good. He has really like just phenomenal floor vision for someone his size, but the handle just isn't really there to be. At, at like super productive at the NBA level in terms of running anything. So he ran a lot of pick and roll at Florida state. And I, it's hard for me to picture him running a, a lot of pick and roll with his handle. And also just like his lack of scoring gravity uh, at the NBA level. Yeah. So um, Florida state recruited him as a point guard and played him exclusively, basically as an offensive point guard. He ran their offense to the tune of like 25 usage and 30 assist percentage, um, which is, you know, that looks like a primary, um, but at the NBA, there isn't necessarily a way for him to create advantage and mm. create rotations because teams are going to go under on his shooting. He shot under 30% and also took less than uh, like one and a half threes a game. Um, I think his, his three-point rate was like in the 20s. Um, I can pull that up real quick. But um, the how he creates rotations as, as a guy with passing ability is the challenge. Like when he's at his best, it's his ability to make quick decisions correctly and to diagnose what a defense is doing before they can, you know, make a counter. And so in that bodes really well for putting him on the short roll uh, in, in pick and roll. You know, if it's, you, know, you have a point guard who can really shoot and they have to blitz it, or, you know, you're using triangle passing um, to, to beat ice. There's ways to do that. The problem is that you need to have a scheme that is already wired that way, because if you put him in a, really horizontal offense like say like what the jazz run like it teams are just going to go under and you know the advantage that is created by the system is going to be lost because he can't necessarily seize upon it he needs a, a very specific type of fit yeah no that totally makes sense to me and um i mean i guess that brings in together like we've talked about how if if the pacers do not trade one of miles turner to modest bonus then drafting scotty makes no sense um so which center do you think he would fit better with or would fit with at all if um, if they were to move one? Um, I mean, if Miles Turner continues to shoot above like 40% three-point, like if, if his three-point attempt rate is above 40%, uh, I think that's the clear choice. Yeah. Um, because that would allow for, like while Sabonis' passing is a formidable part of this equation, um, every possession that you have some bonus initiate like scotty isn't necessarily going to be doing something on that position his gravity wouldn't be affected like his, his gravity would impede Sabonis's passing which i think is Sabonis's best trait yeah is that a is that a fair uh, oh 100 okay i mean i do 
having to have a knowledge of every team means that you kind of have a 10,000 foot view of every team. And, yeah. Uh, even like sometimes you have an idea and it may be somewhat true, but it's a controversial opinion with it. Like it's a, it's a topic of debate within the, the fan base. And so yeah. I never know when I'm stepping on a landmine where like, uh, you know, so I, I just wanted to double check. Um, so I think that like by putting Scotty at the four with, with Sabonis at the five running offense for him, you're sort of mitigating what Sabonis does best. Where if you have Miles shooting as much as he has the past two years, which you know, finally, thank you, thank you, Miles, <laughs> for just deciding that no one like thank you for getting it through your head that you should. Oh, trust me, dude. People still think you should be shooting more, and I, I, I wouldn't, agree. I wouldn't dis- I agree. I would not disagree. Yeah, but like it, yeah, the fact that he's doing it now at this rate is like okay, cool. Let's let's keep keep it up. If you can get a a three point attempt rate above fifty percent and a free throw rate above thirty five, we are in a great place. We are in a fantastic place. That's a that that is, uh, I would say, a his best general usage. But because of the spacing of uh, the threat of Miles at the five spacing out, it allows uh, a synergistic feedback where Scotty can attack a defense that's a little more um, wary of spacing and has to be mindful of their rotations. And that, and if Scotty has the ball, it allows Miles to get a more open type of look. So I think that that fit makes more sense. Um, I don't really have a, an opinion on like who's better between the two, but I think that it is easier to find fits within this draft or within drafts generally um, for fours who play make um, f- for miles than finding fours who are like basically only catch and shoot and slash, but are also like very good defenders and, and can take some of the, the defensive assignments that Sabonis needs. I think that's a harder play type to find. And to me, that's the, the better way of, of team building is just figuring out what's less scarce and, and what you believe you can develop better. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, because the way that I've looked at it is just uh, from a team building standpoint, I agree. I think it's so much easier to find fits around miles, but at the same time, like just then, whenever I've talked to coaches or scouts or anything uh, and how they feel about Sabonis, like it's all just about like, he's a good basketball player is what it comes down to for them. And I know coaches and scouts have different opinions than front office people. And I try and like merge the two. Um, Like at the end of the day, I think whoever gets you the most value back, which I hate deducing it down to that much, but that's just in looking at it front office view, like whichever guy gets you the most sensible or, or just best package back is who you, you end up dealing um, and I really like the idea of Miles and Scotty together because I think Scotty brings some of the without, you know, the same level, but he brings you some of the stuff that Sabonis does as a playmaker while also being a, just a significant upgrade defensively and making this the scheme make sense um, is, is how I view it. But like, I guess I would ask, too, because when you look at um, the Sabonis front, like. I think this is something that stood out to me right away in watching Scotty. And that is that he can't jump. Um, no, no, no. That, it's, it's one of the things that I think there is one of the, the a grand misconception about is that Scotty is a strictly length jumper. Um, he has a, a great wingspan. Like I'd say like, you know, a, a top 10 percentile wingspan, if I had to guess. So a 90th percentile wingspan. I always do that backwards. Um, and he needs every bit of that for his better dunks. Because if he were shaped like a normal NBA player, like a plus six, plus five, like some of these dunks wouldn't be going down. Yeah. Um, and it's not, um, you know, I, I just did a, a film room on, on Rocco Precaution. And like Rocco jumps really well when he doesn't have to slow down. Like if he's just running and jumping, whether it's off one or two feet, he can really, really get up. But he struggles to, to power 
through the posterior chain, you know, from a, a, a uh, from a standstill. Mm-hmm. Um, Scotty's kind of universally a length dunker, um, which is also difficult for me uh, just looking at his history. Like, you know, he's a kid that has been considered, you know, on the pro track since he was in like the summer of eighth grade and has been, you know, Team USA, Montverde, like has been a kid who is, is very much like been in the developmental spotlight. So it's been put in really good situations. I mean, especially the flow state. So like he is less likely to get fantastic physical results because he's been physically developed for so long versus a guy who like, you know, uh, the term fat upside exists or skinny upside guys where it's just like, they're, they are, they are not physically like they don't look like NBA players yet. So in theory, there's more, you know, under the hood when they get into a better strength conditioning program with Scotty, like, no, he he's looked like an NBA player since he was like fifteen. Like yeah, dude is, uh, yeah, he's uh, going to uh, definitely be the first one off the bus for whatever team uh, uh, takes him. Yeah, so like because that stands out to me in terms of rim protection because just in watching him, like he's altered some shots, but it's only really against smaller guards. Um, like he's not altering shots of guys who are his size or bigger. Um, and like, I mean, you, you can, again, he can alter, but the problem is just he's, he can't really get vertical and especially too, like jumping off of his back foot is like a non-starter. Um, just in watching him. And so I just like, when I view him, I don't think that he's going to provide any real rim protection. Like he's going to make the right rotations, which is of course a plus, but in terms of like, if you're playing somebody with the Monta Sabonis, you need somebody who can actually clean up on the back end and not just make a rotation. Like there has to be some real semblance of rim protection. Otherwise, like we've seen this year when Miles Turner isn't on the floor, they get absolutely murdered at the rim. And I do hope that the scheme is going to be different next year. Um, I think it will be. Uh, but point being, like, that's just something you you have to have rim protection to some extent. Yeah, I mean, Scotty is um, a fantastic defensive player rotationally, but there are limitations about the schemes where I would be comfortable playing him at the five. Um, so to play you know, drop or ice, you kind of have to be able to jump. You have to be able to jump while backpedaling mm-hmm. and also be able to hold a position against a guy sprinting full speed at you. And like, if you've ever known a tall person, they're not especially coordinated, but to do that, like at a, as an extremely tall person, you know, six, nine, six, ten, the level of coordination and self-organization is so difficult. Like I would say most NBA bigs can't do that. And that's what's standard for a playoff big. Um, I think that Scotty's rim protection equity comes uh, with the ability to make rotations as a secondary rim protector. So somebody else is walled up and he can come clean it up because he has a mm-hmm. great sense of timing, great sense of rotations. And like, you know, the ball's only going so high, but when you're asking him to, to make these like, you know, primary defeats, he just doesn't have the tools and movement skills to do them. Um, and I think that's what limits his ceiling as a straight five. But if you have, you know, if you are having him in drop and you know that there's a four who can shot block, whether it's, you know, somebody you're not as comfortable with in, in drop, and you can put Sky there because he has the technique to do it. It's just he can't take the lid off the play. And so yeah. there's going to be lobs. There's going to be, you know, certain play types um, and having a more aggressive help defender on, on the weak side who maybe has uh, the, the tools that, that he doesn't will cover for that. But that's not necessarily how you want to build it is by already thinking about the type of player you need to cover up for this player's weaknesses um, for an essential NBA play type. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great way to put it. And I, I like, I just, for me, it's easy to envision him playing with Miles Turner defensively with that. Yeah. Um, 
so I guess the next thing I would ask too, I don't have this on the outline, but it was something I was thinking about. Um, I've seen a lot of the, again, this is just me. Like I haven't, I haven't gotten to watch every game. I'm not going to pass it off like I have, but um, a lot has been thrown out of the idea of him being extremely switchable. And I don't entirely feel that uh, in watching him. Like, I think uh, like, this is just my read again, and I want to get your, your, your thought on it, but like in watching him, uh, he got a lot of stops with his length. He's not exactly a great lateral mover, in my opinion, but like just being by virtue of being six nine with like a seven five wingspan, you can stop guards and and wings who aren't NBA level on drives. So I felt like maybe he's a guy who's like a, a you know a, a can switch like four and five through some threes eventually. But at the moment, I don't really view him as like a super switchable guy. Yeah, I mean, switchable is generally more of an idea. Than yeah, is like a person um, because everybody has matchups. Like every big has matchups that you don't necessarily want them to switch on. Like just a style of mover, a style of ball handler that you do not want them on an island because generally, if you have a big on an island, that's a loss. Like that's mm-hmm. that's just a you've now entered the danger zone. So I think that there are players you can switch him on, but being NBA size and NBA strong cover like it allows for dominance in college. Yeah, because not every like the hardest thing to calibrate for as a as a player is guys who just like their arms are four inches longer than they should be. Your entire life, you thought something is safe, and this guy out of nowhere can just put his arms four inches higher. It's so hard to calculate because you have you know some wings in college are you know minus ones, and then you have other ones that are plus eight, plus nine, and that will cover a lot of the technique mistakes or or movement skill mistakes. I think that I would be comfortable switching him up to some threes or some twos, like strength-based twos, like Jimmy Butler, mm-hmm. like is a, is a matchup I would feel good with, but I don't necessarily consider that switchable. That's just a smaller guy of the same body type. Yeah. I necessarily want him um, like stunting and switching on CJ McCollum. Yeah, no, that would not be great, but he's going to be able for like the lesser versions of CJ like the, the, the lower rungs on the archetype, you know, shiftier combo guards. I think he'll be able to do an okay job just because mm-hmm. he's so long, strong, and, and really understands scheme. Like a lot of uh, guys that we label switchable, like don't actually know what to do when they're on the island. They're just capable of getting there and it doesn't like look bad. But Scotty is able of, you know, internalizing, okay, if this guy goes right, I need to tilt my hips, you know, uh, uh, these many degrees to push him towards help and the help is going to be two and a half steps away so all I need to do is not get burned for this like one second window and if he cracks if he tries to cross back I, I can put a hand up like I think that for lower rungs on the small creator archetypes guy you'll do fine but that's not also where we measure switchable like switching on to Jordan Poole doesn't necessarily can make you switchable it's are we okay if you're on an island against Steph and the answer is no nobody should be Steph will cook you nobody is switchable under that standard so I think that straight switch is, is mostly a fallacy and it's about what level you have comfort you have versus what level of creator for and what style of creator. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me. And I think that's, that's how I kind of view it too, because there are guys like, even when we talk, like I mentioned Thad Young at the beginning, like uh, I think Thad is like semi switchable in, in some of the way that we're talking, like you, do you want him on, on Dame or Steph? Hell no. But like, if you need to put him on Jimmy Butler for a possession or two, he can do it. Like he's capable of, of guarding down and guarding up. It just kind of depends. Like if you have the uh, the length on top of just the knowing what the hell you're doing, it makes a big difference. And also I, I, I got to add uh, after scouting enough guys now, 
and watching shitty zone possessions, like especially watching Cassius Stanley play a bunch at Duke last year. And I watched a bunch of the games against Elijah Hughes. Um, God, the Florida State defense is really fun to watch. Oh, my God. It's like I I am very much an offense person. Um, people who are familiar with my work know that like my two uh, uh, like main coaching sources that I draw from are, are Don Nelson and uh, Mike D'Antoni. But like I could watch them do defensive rotations all day. Like l- last year, they had two just insanely fun uh, defenders in in uh, Devin Vassell and Patwell. And this year, they ha- I mean, Raekwon Gray was on that team as well, just not featured as heavily. And this year, mm-hmm. they have Raekwon Gray and uh, and Scotty. And it's just like very few teams like you see them smile while they're on defense. Houston is sort of the same way, but Houston doesn't necessarily have like the same level of dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're working towards there, but like just. They didn't have, you know, a top five pick last year and a top 10 pick this year. Um, and you can just see, like, they're waiting to get back on defense because they just want to annihilate people. They just want to make perfect rotations and embarrass somebody in a pick and roll coverage. Like, if you close out and, and the, you put the ball too low, every single one of those dudes is ready to, like, rip you clean and get onto the other end. It's so much fun. Yeah, Leonard Hamilton is awesome, man. He's my favorite favorite dude in college easily. Like, I just, it's great. Um, well, all right, so now we got to talk about the shot because we've talked about defense um let's talk about his shooting and self-creation so not just about the three but i guess we can well let's just start with the shot profile i mean right now he really like we mentioned at the beginning he just doesn't take outside shots very often and when when he does they don't fall at a great rate um either from mid-range or from three shot uh just about 30 percent from three i'm trying to add the numbers together in my head right now 27 okay so not just about 30 but close enough um, he takes a lot of floaters for somebody his size and it's not a particularly pretty floater, but it fell at a solid rate, yeah. but it's the kind of shot where I watched him because he's guarded a lot by smaller guys, given that he played point guard, uh, at FSU. And it felt like a lot of the shots that I watched him take, um, were like, okay, if you're being contested by somebody closer to your size and they're an NBA athlete, I don't know if I'm as confident about this going in, um, how do you feel about him as just with his, his shot right now? And before we even talk about the three. Um, so I think the thing that jumps out with me with the floater is that when you're evaluating guards, you always want them to get the easiest shots possible for them to be NBA guards. And this applies to, to, you know, creation wings as well, but like it should for an NBA player playing against basically for, for an NBA, like first rounder or lottery pick with the ball in their hand, if they're rolling the NBA is ball in hand it should be easy for them to get layups or wide open threes in college. And the fact that he has to repeatedly take floaters because again, his, his burst isn't great. Um, his handle is, is based on strength. It, it's functional. And he's able to, again, like at six, nine, like play essentially point guard or actual point guard at, at uh, you know, one of the 10 best basketball schools in the country, but he's not creating separation on every single possession away from guys who he has a strength and length advantage away from. And so while it's good that he was able to get those floaters that he was repeatedly taking them was a concern for me. Yeah. He wasn't finishing over the top of like, okay, there's a six, three guy on me. Like this is over like two dribbles at the rim, um, which is what the ideal would be for a player of his archetype were he to be an actual advantage creator in the NBA. Luckily he has other skills, the, the passing. I mean, the, the floater itself is, is a positive indicator. He's always had, okay touch um in the, in the middle spaces the problem is kind of that like around the rim he needs to have touch because he can't finish over the top of guys 
Um, he's a good foul drawer, but not fantastic. Uh, he's at 34%, uh, which is fine. Um, you know, compare that to like somebody like Ant-Man who was around 50 and like Ant-Man still was good at it. Like Ant-Man struggled to collect fouls in the way that like, you know, uh, like NBA vets is just like, they understand when they're going to get fouled. And so they make the defense foul them even if they know they don't have a shot. Um, when you're bigger, stronger, uh, you know, longer, it's easier to get fouled. And for the foul rate to be that low is because of the floaters. Um, the jumper itself is, is, a, is a, it's stilted. Um, it's better. It looks better than it did in high school um, for the most part, but. Uh, not to cut you off, but what do you like just to, to get a, an impression for people who don't know, what do you mean by stilted? Um, so the ideal jumper is a f- smooth flow of energy from the toes all the way to the top of the jumper. So like, um, you know, when you, when you jump, you ideally want the, the energy transfer to move smoothly. So, you know, if it's one motion or two motions uh, in the jumper, you never want it to look like, um, like you remember, uh, like we've all seen an action figure that they don't, they can tilt at the waist and the yeah. legs can move one. Like you imagine a, a, an action figure shooting a jumper where it's like it, you, you have to, you know, bend over the, uh, the, the upper body and straighten it up, then lift the arms up. Like, there's clear the energy transfer doesn't move in a in the way that we would like, which is just one smooth motion, which is what we would consider an easy shot. It just looks easy coming out of their hand. Scotty's jumper appears laborious. He has to, um, you know, it, it looks like he's focusing on how to shoot a basketball when he's shooting a basketball. And the energy transfer is similarly as difficult, where it just doesn't the the legs and the the arms don't necessarily connect in a way that says I can take my range out, you know, three or four feet further while maintaining the same percentages. Okay, yeah, that that definitely makes sense. Um, so how long? I mean, how are you feeling about him having to like? Is he like a total shot rework, or where are you at with her, where his jumper is at now, where it's headed? So I think that he is currently doing a rework. That's my impression of, of how the jumper looked during Florida State was that like he was reworking it. Um, I think that my concern isn't will he or won't he shoot, it's that his NBA projection depends on him shooting. And that's a very fraught circumstance where like what level he shoots is what level of team building you can put around him. If he shoots 32%, then like he basically can't play a certain amount of minutes unless he becomes just a, a ludicrous defender. And that's you know an unfair expectation to put on somebody. But because, but because there are so many other limitations within his game, the shooting becomes more essential as a development. And so like the level to which he's a shooter is the level that an organization should be comfortable drafting him high. Um, and their ability to like dampen that if it doesn't work. Because like in like in a suboptimal fit, if he doesn't shoot, like the the offensive rating for those lineups will be like eighty seven. That's uh, it might be yeah. 90, it might be ninety on defense, but it, it'll be rough. Um, yeah. So I feel okay about it, but my concern is more that he like for his NBA projection, for his archetype, and um, for the lineups that he will play in. If he does not shoot, he is a much less valuable player, and that really scares me. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, that totally makes sense. And it, it just speaks even more to how important it would be to play alongside a spacing five um, or a spacing four, wherever he ends up playing, you know, more full time at. Um, well, I guess I would ask too, because uh, like part of the reason where I would not want him to, well, I just personally for him would not want him to be drafted on a team with the modest bonus 
primarily there is that they, I mean, I, I, I kind of envision him doing a lot of stuff with DHOs or just in screening in general and trying to operate from some of the same area. Cause he has, again, it's not the same, like to, to compare somebody to Demonis bonus, his vision is, is unfair, but like, do you envision him being kind of a, a player in the DHO or, or maybe doing some more stuff uh, operating from the high post? Yeah. I mean, I think DHO is going to be essential. I mean, he has a, a functional handle. So figuring out ways of, of leveraging that because he can, he can tilt a defense slightly or, you know, move the offense where it needs to be to, to, to set up some of these actions. So like, I think short roll is necessary. DHOs are necessary. Um, getting him into circumstances where he can, because he's not going to be able to self-create on his own, putting him in situations where the defense is reacting already to one action and it flows into a second. So if that's like a, a very tough pick and roll, whether that's using him um, um, coming off like a stagger screen into a pick and roll. So where the defense is already adjusting and they can't maybe get the, the really soft coverage as they want on his jumper. Mm-hmm. Like these are all things that are possible, but they also require a specific you know, you, what you can't do is also have somebody else who needs, you know, mid post touches or, yeah. uh, you know, to run Princeton sets or where they hold the ball because every second that, you know, Scotty isn't one in one of these schemed actions, his man is going to be helping. And because he doesn't have the, like the Jeremy Grant thing, uh, when Jeremy Grant was before his breakout in Denver, it was like, well, you can't really help off him that far because he'll just go, they'll just throw the ball to the top of the square and he'll bang it. And Scotty doesn't necessarily have that athleticism and, and that suddenness to, to punish teams in the same way. So that puts, again, an, another stress on, on the team building context. Yeah, because that's something that stood out to me a lot in watching him as well. Like he gets if he doesn't have the ball in his hands at Florida State, he's either in the corner. And I mean, teams covered him way more than I, I think they should have in the corner, to be completely frank. Um, and the, those possessions just generally did not go well for Florida State. Um but then also, I mean, there are some times where he's in the dunker spot and especially looking at an NBA level, like I just don't think that that's super productive for him because he's not like, I mean, I, just given watching his athleticism, he's not somebody who I think is going to be really too potent in the lob game. Um, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I think like getting him in the right circumstance and context where he's involved in actions, again, not being the primary, but having ways to attack the defense and just utilize his vision is going to be really important. So finding that right context. There are contexts, but it's also, there's not that many of those contexts. Like, Hey, well, they exist. They are very specific and not necessarily like the sort of player that, that Scotty needs to be played next to are also the sort that are like both exceedingly rare and exceedingly valuable. Mm. So, I guess I would ask kind of in closing then, what is your, I mean, what's your preferred destination for? We're not preferred, but I mean, I know you mentioned Portland, but like if best utilized, where do you think that would be for him? And also what do you think his, his upside is? I, I don't, I know I'm not like the biggest on like trying to project what somebody's upside is because people just have a way of showing you that you're fucking wrong when you make a prediction on what they're going to be. But um, I, I guess, yeah. How do you view that? Yeah, this is a this is a tough one. I would say like Portland is very interesting. Um, Dallas would be really fun. Ooh, Dallas would be really fun for him. Um, you know, uh, it feels somewhat cheating, but Memphis uh, would be <laughs> interesting. Like Jaron shoots enough. And yeah, like you have. You know, I think Jaw will shoot 
uh, that amount of pull-up jumpers by the time that you know uh, we're around the, the second year of second or third year of Scotty. Um, the Grizzlies will just never miss a defensive rotation again. Yeah, so. never ever. Just him and him and Melton has to mind meld. Uh, it, it'd bring you know it would bring the scores of uh, of of the, the the Southeast Division to uh, you know back to 1987. <laughs> yeah, it, like I, that's fun. I, I can hear Sacramento as an idea. Um, that's one that I, I wrote when I wrote my original Scotty piece would about this time last year. Um, was like before they had Halliburton, though I think that Halliburton sort of changes the the amount of ball handling you'd want from a forward because um, mm-hmm. of his ability to, to seize on chaos. I think that rather than viewing him as like an upside guy, um, he is a player for whom a team can ascend a level, not necessarily like, oh, is he, you know, an all-star guy? Is he a sub-all-star guy? It's the, like Scotty Barnes is going to help a team win. I don't know if that's going to be his first team on his first contract, on his second contract, on his third contract, his first team or his second team. But like at some point, Scotty Barnes is going to make a team win a playoff round or two because he's there. And it may take some tinkering to get there. Um, you know, I think the league is trending in a direction where there will be more guys who help him. Like the archetype that we're talking about is something that is coming um, in the next three or four drafts. So the NBA is shifting more towards bigs who can shoot in space and uh, point guards who are. Uh, aggressively hunting pull-up threes. Um, so I think that his archetype is, is in vogue and finding a team that is willing to make the adjustments necessary to uh, seize on his gifts is going to be very fruitful. Yeah, no, I agree. I these Like we mentioned, he's been one of my favorite players to watch and uh, another one of my favorite players to watch in the draft cycle, so we'll talk about next week. But, uh, PD, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. This has been a blast. I always enjoy getting to talk. Do you have uh, Do you have anything that you want to plug or, or get out there? I'll, of course, have links to your Patreon and um, everything else to, to to get in touch with you and, and your work uh, in the description below. But anything else you want to hit on? Just Yeah. Um, by the time that this podcast will come out, I will have uh, successfully uploaded uh, Let's Watch Film number three on Rocco Precaution uh, featuring uh, Ignacio Rizzotto of ID prospects. Um, I've been doing a, uh, a, a, uh, a film watching project where I take a, um, an analyst and we break down a, a game of, of a player in the 2021 draft um, to sort of make tape and, and how we watch and uh, you know, what we're looking for, what we're seeing it as transparent as possible to, to build sort of a, the awareness of, for everybody. Like, uh, I know that it can be really difficult to understand, you know, like when is a hammer screen, what's the difference between like a hammer screen and a flare? Um, you know, how do you know when a team is in zone? What's a projectable jumper? And like some of these things are sort of just feel. And instead of making uh, basketball a sort of stifling uh, closed door club, trying to, to open up my process and the process of, of the guests that we've had and and that's on youtube uh, the link is i think in my twitter but uh, if you go to my twitter which is above the break three you can uh you, there will be a retweet of, of that and past episodes which were on usman garuba of real madrid who is another insanely fun defensive player and josh giddy um who is uh you know australian lamello ball with a little less dribbling and a little more audacity the, the, my favorite part about Josh is that it's a little more audacity. <laughs> it's, it's oh my god! Like the arrogance in some of his passes is kind of ridiculous. I uh, I just watched a couple full games for the first time uh, a few days ago, and I was just like, "Holy shit!" 
Like he's some of the things that he throws are like, I was just like, you, you did that. You, you, you got the ball off of a defensive rebound and you decided that's what you were going to do. And it works sometimes. And it's just like, it's kind of really freaking enjoyable to watch. Yeah. I, the way that I described it was like, it's the captain America meme where he's turned the chair around. It's like, so you've decided to try to throw a cross court nutmeg and it didn't go well. Let's talk about it. And like, he just makes decisions that like, I really want to like immediately call a timeout and just conduct a nerdy be like, so like, I don't understand what you saw. I'm really proud that you did that. I don't know how you decided to do that. Like there's a, there's this one pass where he throws uh it's a wrap around, but he wraps it around the other way with his inside hand. And I was just like, I would have never thought to do that. And, you know, I I've been known to throw some, un, you know, uh, some ill-advised passes in my day and uh, man, it, a joy to watch. Uh, I can't recommend that that film room enough. I can't recommend watching Josh Giddy enough. Uh, just a truly fun prospect. Watching yeah. it is great. Yeah, it, I, I've really, I really enjoyed this draft and following your work too. And also to everyone listening, of course, please go watch the streams. Like they're they're great. I've I've learned a ton from PD and just all this stuff. But getting the actual kind of hands on and, and getting to witness the streams has been really fun. I got to watch the Usman one live, which was with Nikias. Nikias Duncan, one of the greats of NBA Twitter and just NBA in general. Uh, my my good friend and PD's good friend, Henry Ward, was on the first one. That was really enjoyable as well. Um, it's just it, a lot of good stuff. I, I, I'm looking forward to, to even more and just uh, just keeping it, keeping it real. So, PD, I appreciate you, man. I won't, I won't take any more of your time. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll check in again next week, man. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much.